Hi guys, I just wanted to hop on really quick before the episode and give a quick trigger warning. Um, First of all, obviously by this episode's title, we're going to be talking about religious trauma. So there's going to be talk about trauma, PTSD, emotional, verbal, psychological abuse, purity culture, sexual assault and abuse, manipulation, religious trauma, and church abuse. In addition, this was one of the first episodes that I recorded, and we actually had a pretty significant glitch in the recording software. So this episode is a little bit muffled, and the audio quality is just a tiny bit funky. Um, I apologize for that, but part of the glitch is that it I can't really edit it too much. So it kind of is what it is. This is the last batch of those funky audio ones. Um but it's a great episode, and um, I think especially coming off of last week's episode with deconstructing from growing up in a Christian school and in a Christian childhood, I think this will be a great next step for a lot of people. So I would really encourage you to listen if you feel that you have the capacity to do so. Um, anyways, I hope you enjoy the episode. And welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, today we have Katie from Embodied and Thriving, and we are going to chat a little bit about religious deconstruction and trauma. And I'm just going to give a little forewarning: it is pouring where I am, and so you're probably going to hear some lovely soothing rain sounds in the background. Um, so I apologize in advance for that, but it is really coming down. Um, so, <laughs> Katie. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit. Oh, it's hailing now. That's what that is. It is hail. Um, But I wanted to chat with you a little bit, even kind of you want to introduce yourself a little bit, share a little about your background and why you created Embodied and Thriving and kind of where that vision started. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So... I created my account Embodied and Thriving uh, last July, so it hasn't been around for terribly long. Um, I am from an evangelical background. Um, I grew up in the church with very religious parents who were former missionaries, um, and I was very deeply involved both in a personal way um, as I got older and also, you know, through my parents when I was younger. Um, I began deconstructing uh, my evangelical identity in the beginning of college, Um, and it took me a couple of years, and I kind of muddled through things, um, played around with different labels that fit, and eventually got to where I am now. Um, But my big motivation in creating my account uh, was realizing how few resources there were at the time when I began deconstructing. It was really lonely. Um, I didn't really even know what the term deconstruction. I hadn't met a lot of other people that were on similar journeys. And then all of a sudden, um, honestly, I can't even remember now how I first kind of found out about this sort of deconstruction community on Instagram. But I started seeing that there were actually people talking about their shared experiences. And it was so healing for me to realize that I wasn't alone in what I was processing because it is such a big transition. Um, so I am currently in school training to be a therapist. I decided, uh, 
couple years ago to make a career change. Um, and so I am not licensed yet, still in school, but I am looking forward to eventually working um, in a clinical and professional setting with people who are experiencing religious transitions, um, have experienced religious trauma, um, and other issues relating to that. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's a really good point of just the loneliness sometimes that can take over when you're going through deconstruction and when you're going through that period, especially if um, you're religious, which for most people, their religious background is rooted in their family. And so a lot of the times if yeah. your family is not on that same journey of deconstruction and maybe your entire community that you've built up is religious. Mm -hmm. And I, that journey of deconstruction can kind of swipe all of that in, in one whoosh. And a lot of the times it's so freeing and you feel like Mm -hmm. a lot of your questions are finally being answered. And these little doubts and these little feelings that you've had for a long time are being validated. Mm -hmm. But then it's also like, well, I just lost everybody and I don't have that community anymore. Even, I mean, Mm -hmm. hi, a church alone is such a major community aspect. Um, Did you experience Mm -hmm. some of that with your journey? Did you feel like you lost a lot of your community? Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think that was one of the hardest and scariest parts of the whole transition. Um, So I was homeschooled from kindergarten through 12th grade, which was part of my parents' religious worldview. Um, They were like, Christian school is not, you know, religious enough. We need to be able to to educate you. So my whole community was with other quiverful, almost kind of very, very conservative, very Christian homeschooling families in Southern California, which is where I grew up. Um, And it it did function as a very tight-knit community. I mean, that was those were the people I socialized with, I went to church with, I spent time with, they were my friends. Um, but it was a very insular community where we were all connected by a very specific set of shared beliefs. Um, and so, yeah, when you realize that your beliefs are starting to change or you're having questions, it's just this flood of feelings of, you know, oh my God, like, what do I do with all of this? Because uh, at least in the community I grew up in, it was made very, very clear that you would be ostracized and shunned and sort of kicked out if you ever stopped believing. Um, So yeah, when I went off to college and I had a little bit more space because of the geographical distance, I left California and went to Michigan. Um. I had a little more freedom to entertain those thoughts, which like you were mentioning is really freeing to be able to um, think for yourself. But at the same time, it's really scary to realize that if I go public with the way that I'm changing, I'm going to lose the entire community that basically supported me my entire life up until then. Yeah. And I, I relate to you on, um, just the the fear of all of that. And I think that that's very common. I had a similar experience where college, I think for a lot of people, college is it, as that's where they mm-hmm. start to really explore it. But 
Yeah, I think a lot of the freedom was the distance. And it, it, I actually was pretty close yeah. to home. I was like an hour away. But just the fact that I was living in my mm. own space and I had this freedom that comes with being in college, just of having, hey, I can come home whenever I want to. And I can, yeah, you know, I can cuss if I want to. Even things like that were like in my household. That wasn't, yeah. I, that wasn't okay. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it. I wanted to even chat with you a little bit about, I think, kind of the grief process of leaving the mm. church, because there there is a scale of emotions that you go through that is very similar to the grief process. And you go through the anger and the fear and eventually the yes. acceptance. And I think I, I've never lost anyone close to me. And so I, I don't have something to compare it to. But from what I've read about the grief process, it seems like you are you are grieving this loss of, for a lot of people, something that helped them become who they are and helped mm-hmm. them uh, meet their closest friends and their closest mentors. And I think even the duality of that, of maybe having some anger and some bitterness towards the church while also mm-hmm. sitting there and saying, this also helped me become who I am. And there it's hard to like have those two truths exist simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Um, it can be confusing and disorienting. I think to hold space for both those truths that um, this community and these beliefs may have been deeply traumatizing to me, but at the same time, there were other aspects of the community and the support and, uh, the opportunities that this religion practice opened up for me that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, And I think one of the beautiful things about deconstruction in general is that it gives you the ability to hold space for both of that. Um, Fundamentalist religions, which I think in general are mostly what people deconstruct, although you could deconstruct from any religious background, um, the greatest number of people that I've interacted with that are leaving the church are usually coming from a more um, authoritarian or high control religious background. Um, And those communities think in a very binary, very like um, polar way where everything is just black or white and there's no space for either. And so when you're initially deconstructing, at least in my case and a lot of other people I've interacted with, um, you swing between those extremes of being like, I'm so angry. Everything I experienced was so bad. And then realizing, well, wait, that that's not exactly true. That doesn't exactly fit. You know, um, a lot of times, like you're saying, it's close friends. It's family members you love. It's people that you respected and looked up to all your life that are still active parts of a religion you're maybe leaving behind. Um, and so... It is an exercise in deconstruction in and of itself to be able to hold room for that um, that gray space to realize that it's not all black and white. You don't have to hate or feel anger towards everything, um, but you're very you're very okay to be angry about the things that were harmful to you that may have caused trauma or just been um, really adverse experiences while at the same time holding space for the fact that there were good things that came out of that too. Yeah, for sure. And 
yeah, it, it it's it's so it's it's interesting that you bring up the black and white aspect because I think that that's something that people really struggle with. And mm-hmm. I am naturally someone who is pretty black or white. I'm pretty, mm-hmm. you know, all in, all out. And I was actually just talking with my sister about this because we're going through pretty similar process processes, and we actually started to kind of deconstruct almost at the same time, and we're three wow. years apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were talking about what do you do when the anger subsides? Because I think so much of it is this bitterness and this anger and it kind of keeps you going and you almost feel like it validates your decision to leave because you're like, well, Mm -hmm. no, I was wronged and I was hurt. I have a right to feel this way. My feelings are valid. And so much of that comes from a lot of the times in the church, there's not a lot of validation of feelings and emotions and I think that right. a lot of us crave this like validation of someone mm-hmm. tell me that it's okay that I'm feeling this way. And so right. I know a lot of people that um, use that anger to justify their feelings. And it's like, well, no, I, this is, this was unjust. I have a reason to feel this way. I, it's not, I have a right to feel this way. And then once you start to separate from that anger and move on with your life, it's like, well, well what do I do now? Because now I don't have this anger to hold on to. And you're kind of in that mm-hmm. acceptance phase of grief, but then you're also sitting there like, am I still allowed to be angry? And I know for me, it was hard for me to even step out of the anger. Cause I think that I had my time where I needed to be angry. I needed mm-hmm. to be mad. I needed to be bitter. And I, I really needed to be able to feel those feelings. And I hadn't been able to feel them for years. But then I I also reached a point where I needed to decide I can't keep living like this. I can't keep having a bone to pick with everyone because I would go on social media and I'd sit there and anybody who was saying anything that I felt was not what I thought it should be or anyone who was even anyone who was in support of religion, I then felt like was mm-hmm. my enemy because it was like, mm-hmm. well, no, I've learned all this stuff about religion and how religion is bad. And it's, Mm -hmm. it hurts people and it traumatizes people. And well, I can't, I can't be around you if you think it's okay. And it became Mm -hmm. this like very dividing mindset for me. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think especially when you're experiencing really intense anger for the first time, a lot of us may not really even know what to do with that emotion. Um, Because yeah, uh, anger is not a, an emotion that a lot of um, religions encourage people to feel or make space for. Um, there's a lot more emphasis on forgiveness or um, restitution or unity or different uh, values and not a lot on people expressing feelings and anger like you were mentioning. Um, and so it can, it can be just an overwhelming kind of avalanche of anger when you realize you're allowed to be angry about the things that happen to you. You're allowed to, you know, call things traumatic or harmful or abusive when they were, and you get to express all of that. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, it's a, it's a process, uh, like the, uh, the, Kubler-Ross models of grief, the five stages. And we oftentimes think about moving through them really linearly, like, okay, first you're in denial, and then you move to anger, and then you move to bargaining, and then depression, and then acceptance. 
But I don't think it's always quite so straightforward. I think a lot of times um, it's more of like a like a cyclical process. You may move from anger into grief, um, and then you may kind of be in acceptance for a while, and something might come up and trigger some of those memories again, and you might move back into anger. Um, so I think for a lot of us, we absolutely need to be able to be comfortable um, feeling angry. And I think for a lot of us, too, who are socialized as women, um, societally, that's not an emotion many of us are very comfortable expressing. Um, right. People who are socialized as men get a little more space to be angry. Um, but people socialized as women, we we learn to be sad um, and to sit with grief. And so I think that for, you know, people socialized in these ways, we have to get learned, learn to be comfortable expressing the emotions we weren't maybe allowed to express before. Um, and that can be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a good point. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone describe that grief is not always linear because right as you were saying that I was like, Oh, I do think of it that way. I do think of it being this, like, I think part of that on, or um, also is because in school, we're taught a lot of different cycles, mm-hmm. whether that be like, even like the, the rain cycle of how, how rain works and you got the cute little diagrams mm-hmm. in class and it's a circle and right. every, every, it has its order. And then you've got, you know, all these different things that you see in school of cycles and that everything has an order Mm -hmm. and you do your worksheets and there's a one, two, three, four, five, and you have to put them in order. Mm -hmm. And I think it really teaches every uh, people in general that things are linear and that there, there Mm -hmm. isn't this, uh, that life is really not linear in, in most aspects. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I, I think that personally it's one of those things where with trauma i have such an obsession with timelines mm. and with oh i should be over it by now it's been long enough i should yeah. be over it by now specifically i'll i'll hit on anniversaries and it'll be like mm-hmm. it's the 3 year anniversary i should not still be feeling this and mm. i think with deconstruction and with just trauma in general the, the phrase healing isn't linear has been really circulating the last few years and yes. um, trauma, it can't be linear because if, if you if you're being triggered and you have triggers that are psychological and that you, you don't really have a control over and it's literally in your brain. Mm-hmm. It is now part of your, mm-hmm. part of your biology and your neurology. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can't be linear. There's no, there's no way for it to be linear because you can be going at a linear pace and something pops up and now you're have, you have the same feelings in your body that you felt when you were 10 and it, it shoots you right back. Um, but that's, that's a wonderful point. I've never thought about it that way, but I, I'm even right now feeling like I'm moving out of the anger phase and I'm part of that is I'm busy now and I'm working a full-time right. job and I'm just like, dude, anger takes a lot of energy and I don't have that energy right now. Mm-hmm. But then I'll feel like I'm over it and I'm big on closure too. I love feeling like mm-hmm. something is closed and tied up in a pretty bow and I'll feel like, oh, I'm over it. And then I'll see um, even everything with Robbie Zacharias and seeing these new allegations. And it's just like, then mm-hmm. this, I just, I'm just like, Ugh. 
and I just like bubble up with anger again and I'm ready to like yeah. go take my sword and shield and like fight for justice kind of a thing. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess uh, a good question for you with your personal experience, what do you think is a good way for people to hold space for that and hold grace for themselves in that healing process of trying to remove those expectations of timelines and of, Oh, I should, Oh, I should. And all those should statements. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point because we really bombard ourselves and are oftentimes bombarded by society. These expectations of what healing looks like and kind of, you know, these linear models of you should be moving from this to this to this, and then boom, you're going to arrive at this mythical place of like complete healing. When in reality, like that is not, that is not true. I don't believe that there's any such place you can just arrive at a destination of being healed. It's just a process of being able to uh, integrate the traumatic experiences that you've had um, and learn to live with them in such a way that they do not keep you from experiencing uh, more positive emotions like happiness um, or being able to function. Um, and that is certainly true. Like people can make a lot of progress in being able to integrate some of those experiences that they don't feel so big or so heavy on a daily basis. Um, but a lot of it, I think, in really accepting that there's no exact timeline. I think there's a grief process inherent in that too. You have to grieve your lost expectations about what you thought healing would look like. And I remember very distinctly kind of going through my own process with this. Um, I experienced a lot of abuse and trauma in my childhood in addition to religious trauma um, and getting to a place where I was like, I just want the life I would have had if none of this would ever happened. Like, I just want to get to this point where it's all in the past and I could sort of return to like the Katie I would have been yes. if things had been different. And there's a huge grief process in acknowledging that you can't undo the things that happened to you. Um, the only thing you have in your power is, yeah, learning to integrate them so that you can move forward, so that you can still do and be the person you'd want to want be and do the things that are important to you. Um, I think it's a lot about self-compassion. I mean, you hear people say that a lot, especially in the therapy circle on Instagram right now. It's all about self-compassion, but I think that's such an important concept that I have to keep coming back to, um, is just being able to sit with the emotions that come up um, in a non-judgmental way. Notice what you're feeling. Um, to notice if, yeah, maybe you're more angry today, maybe you're more sad Um, And then develop some coping strategies to help you sit with those emotions, because like you're describing, they can be really intense. Um, I know that I had a really visceral response to uh, the report about Robbie Zacharias and the new allegations that came up. Um, And you do, you need to be prepared to to cope with those really intense emotions. Um, And that's why I think especially for people who've experienced religious trauma, but just deconstructing in general, because it's a big transition. If you can find um, a therapist or some other mental health professional that is able to hold space for you with all of that, 
it really helps because these are huge things that you're trying to process and it's so much to do on your own. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it, for, I'll touch on two things that you said, the, the grieving of the person you could have been is so intense. Um, my whole freshman year of college was me literally, and I was so funny because I, I've always been told by therapists, by teachers, you're very self-aware and I am, but it's almost to a detriment of myself. (laughs) And I was Mm. so aware that I was becoming someone different and I, it scared me. And I also didn't, I didn't like that the healing process was, um, slowing me down in other ways. It was definitely like bringing me to a spot where I was mentally doing better or even not even doing better, but mentally working through things that needed to be worked through. But then Mm -hmm. I would sit there and say, um, my grades were like my number one thing. They were Mm -hmm. my pride and joy. It was where I found every ounce of validation. It was, Mm -hmm. and I think so much of that actually is rooted in what I was taught religiously of, um, always wanting to be good enough and wanting to earn this, uh, grace and this forgiveness. And it was something that even as a kid, I was aware of, I was aware that was what I was struggling Mm -hmm. with. I was aware that I, I would, I would write in my little journal and say, you know, I didn't earn it. It's free. Like it was freely given. And I would, you know, like really Mm -hmm. try to reinforce that. And it, the performance aspect of it was still just so ingrained in my brain. And I literally developed like performance anxiety where it was just like, Mm -hmm. I was so set on performing that when I felt like I didn't do good enough and that was really, really manifested in my grades and being the good girl. And Mm -hmm. so if I got an A minus, I would have a full panic attack at like 14. And I would sit there with my mom holding me in her lap and my parents were never, ever, ever pressuring when it came to grades. And I just put so much pressure on myself. And um, mm-hmm. my main goal was to be valedictorian. That was like my, my like pride and joy from age 12. I finally did it. And then I remember going to college and I started to work through all these things mentally that I had all these mm-hmm. traumas that I had never touched. Mm-hmm. And I had stored them in what me and my therapist and my family all call my vault because I literally like locked them away so intensely and I started to finally process through them. And all I could tell people was, I just want valedictorian FINA back. And I would tell people it on a normal basis of just like, Mm -hmm. I'm not doing good in school. I'm not eating. I'm not being social. And it was because I was so weighed down by all of this trauma that was finally being unlocked. And I was opening that mm-hmm. door to this vault that hadn't been touched in 18 years. And, um, it was so overwhelming and the, the grieving of, it took me maybe a year and a half to stop saying, I just want valedictorian Fina back. And I remember, mm-hmm. I don't know who told me it, but someone sat down with me and was like, well, maybe there's just a new Fina. Maybe it's not valedictorian Fina. Maybe it's not this Fina right now that's really struggling. But maybe we're working towards a new Fina that's kind of blending everything together in a way that is healthier and, 
yeah, it's going to involve some change and that's scary, but that way you're not so focused on retroactively, like going back and trying to find, you know, and it was so panicked too. I was always so panicked of like, almost like digging and be, Oh gosh, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? Where is this person that I lost? Cause I need her back. Cause I can't, I can't be this sad person who's Mm-hmm. triggered all the time. I need to find the person who was strong and who had it together. Right. Um and really truly like once you unlock that trauma, once you start processing through it, it kind of just comes at you hard and comes at you fast. Um and it's overwhelming. And so uh, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about was specifically triggers because I think that mm. for so many people, including myself, Anything involving Christianity is just so triggering for me. Hearing someone pray over me sends a chill down my spine. Um, hearing a worship song, I hear I have a visceral reaction to it. So mm. how have you worked through that? And what have you found like coping strategy-wise that has been helpful with because you can't just like mm. erase a re- religion from the world. It's still gonna be there. So how do you right. coexist with exactly. it? Exactly. Wow, that is such a great question to talk about because you're right. I think that affects so many of us um, who experience some kind of trauma or abuse in particularly a Christian setting because we still live in a country where that religion plays a really big role in society. Um, I remember talking to some friends after watching the inauguration earlier this year, how triggering it was how religious of a political ceremony it was uh, with people singing hymns and quoting Bible verses. Uh, It was very hard to watch because of that. So I definitely know that I wasn't alone in feeling triggered by that. Yeah, Um, a lot of people were really overwhelmed by that. Yeah, that brings up such a good point is what do you do when that happens? Um, So I think I'd want to step back for a second and talk about kind of the physiology of trauma and what a trigger is. So I really like the definition from Bessel van der Kolk, who's one of the kind of pioneering scholars on trauma, the author of The Body Keeps yes. Score. I'll plug that book real quick. If anyone yes, hasn't yes, yes. read it, it is, it's a hard read, so pace yourself. Um, it's really academic and it can be hard if you're a trauma survivor to take in all that information. But it's yep, very I'm like I'm only like a few chapters in because I'm having to take it like very slowly because it's a lot (laughs) it is a lot um but he describes trauma as anything that overwhelms your central nervous system um and there's kind of a I'm not sure the source of it I can't quote it but I've heard it passed around the idea that trauma is anything that happens like too much too fast too soon um and yep I've heard that as well mm mm-hmm Yeah, so if we think about trauma as that, something that literally overwhelms our brain and body's ability to cope, um, triggering some sort of either fight or fight, flight, or freeze response as a result of that of trying to cope, um, trauma results when we're not able to fight, flight, or freeze our way into the completion of that stress cycle. And so it's literally like you were saying, it's kind of... um, 
those emotions of overwhelm and everything associated that are are locked down in our bodies um, until we're able to successfully complete that stress cycle and really process that trauma. And that usually takes some time. It's not just a one-time thing like, oh, you go for a really vigorous run and boom, trauma's discharged. It's usually a process. Um, So anytime a trigger happens, is just anything that it can be, you know, can be a sight, it can be hearing something, seeing something, um, even a smell, anything that takes you back into that moment of your traumatic experience. Um, so for, yeah, for church things, it might be like seeing someone wearing a cross necklace or hearing a Bible verse or a hymn or a religious family member asking to pray over you or, you know, you're at your parents' house for the holidays and, you know, someone asks you a religious question, all sorts of those things can trigger religious trauma. Um, So I think there's a couple of things that I have done personally that have helped me to cope with that. Um, The first thing I'll say is like setting boundaries is really important in helping yourself not be overwhelmed by triggers. So for example, um, For me, this looks like, you know, separating myself as much as possible from religious influences in my life. Um, So I didn't go to church anymore because that was really triggering for me once I realized how much trauma I had. Um, I got rid of my Bible because seeing it was enough to be triggering for me. Um, I put some space and some boundaries in place with religious friends and family and was like, this is not something I'm really going to be able to discuss with you for this time. Um, And those things are all hard and they'll look different for every person. Um, But some kind of space can be helpful in just limiting the number of triggers you have to deal with. And then the second thing is figuring out, like we were saying, coping strategies to deal with the triggers when you can't stop them. When it's something like the inauguration, you can't stop that from happening. And you may really want to watch it. So you just have to figure out how am I going to respond to this? Um, So a lot of times what helps are things that get you regulated because a trigger sends your nervous system back into a state of overwhelm, of panic, of I'm not able to cope with this. Um, So things that help to ground you and remind you that you're safe in the present. So all sorts of grounding activities, um, whether it's the smelling like an essential oil or a strong scent, um, feeling something really hot or really cold, like an ice cube or a hot cup of tea. Um, There are all sorts of different grounding exercises that you can do, um, focusing on your breathing for a little while. Um, You can also co-regulate with a pet or a trusted person um, in your life, just physically being around them. We have the ability to lower our heart rates and our blood pressure to match the animal or the trusted person that's in our space with us, and that can help us deal with those overwhelm. Um, But it's all about activities and things that are going to bring you back and ground you in the safety of the present and create that space to be like, I'm physically, my body and mind are going back to a moment, but that is in the past. And I'm going to remind myself that I'm safe because I'm in the present and I don't exist in that moment anymore, even though it feels like I do. Yeah, I think um, specifically setting boundaries is so hard 
and so important. Um, that was one that took me a hot second because I didn't want anyone to feel like I was letting them down. Um, especially when so many people in my life had poured so much time and energy into helping, um, kind of stoke the fire of my faith. And Mm -hmm. it was really, I'm, I'm, like I said, such a performance oriented person and in Mm -hmm. at my very core for a very long, long, long time was like very teacher's pet where I just really wanted Mm -hmm. to specifically please authority. Um, I don't really give a shit if I please my peers, but for me, it was always just like an authority thing. And once again, I do think that was really, I think that's religiously rooted and the, just the fear, the fear of God, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was so hard because it was like, I didn't want anyone to feel like I was offending them or like I was uh, letting them down. Or I also didn't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable around me because it was like, I don't want you to feel like you can't exist in your religion because I have trauma there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really tricky balance. And for me, I, I did a lot of the similar, I did a lot of the same things. I did the removal of my Bible and I actually, when this is like, you know, the, you're traditionally not supposed to do this, but I, um, I like ripped it up. I was like, I need to like get this to, it needs, to, I need to have, I need to exert some energy here because this mm-hmm. holds so much weight and fear and shame and bitterness for me. And I need to release some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I made it really clear that I, I, I announced it to my family, which is always a very interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. And I did set boundaries there of, um, here's what I'm comfortable. Here's what I'm not comfortable with. And I went through my Spotify and I unfollowed all of the religious artists, all unfollowed mm-hmm. Bethel unfollowed Hillsong, which I had like, re- like, religiously I'm using that ironically, but religiously followed and like just been so obsessed with them and gone to their conferences and had their merch. Mm -hmm. And I also, this is the big one. I had to get my tattoos covered up because I had multiple Bible first tattoos and that took a really, I still have one that we're, we're going to pretty soon here, but, um, I had a gigantic Bible verse and I mean, gigantic on my forearm and it was my first tattoo. And at first I was like, well, I'm, I don't identify with Christianity anymore, but, um, I don't know. Like the Bible's not terrible. So I can just think of it as like a Chinese proverb kind of a thing on my arm. And I kind of was like, you know, it's fine. It's fine. It's, and a part of it was, I was embarrassed. I didn't want to look stupid of going back and having to cover it up. And then the more and more I thought about it, I would look at it and I would just feel icky. And I was just like, I literally have a trigger on my body. <laughs> my trigger yeah. is in my skin. And that was something that I just covered it up two months ago because I was just like, I had already announced publicly that I was leaving Christianity, which that was another thing was I, I announced, I didn't, I wasn't initially going to announce it publicly. It was just going to be a private journey for me. But I realized really quickly that so many people in my life, I knew from religion. I had so many followers on Instagram 
that I used to be their worship leader or I used to be their youth leader or their camp counselor. And I've prayed over them or I was one of their mentors. And it was like, Mm -hmm. I feel like there needs to be an announcement here partially so that I can fully feel like I'm living my truth, but then also so that these people Mm -hmm. can decide whether or not they'd like to live in that truth with me. And if they don't, Mm. please remove yourself because it was like, I don't want to get the DMS of, Oh, you know, here's a Bible verse that made me think of you. Um, which I did get a few Mm -hmm. of those and I had to set the boundary pretty hard and fast. Um, I had a few people send me sermons and do the really patronizing, um, response of like, you know, you're lost and you're broken and I'm, I'm praying for you. And I was always, Mm -hmm. I had multiple times where I had to, um, I respectfully set the boundary and said, Hey, I don't appreciate that. I'm a fully grown adult who has made this decision with a lot of thought Mm -hmm. behind it. Um, a lot of processing, a lot of talking to my therapist, a lot of intention. And for you to write off that intention as me being lost or broken is so invalidating and offensive to me personally. Mm-hmm. And so I, I set that boundary. And some people then took that and said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. And then in, in, that, in my, for my personal space, I was like, I'm okay with you still having a space here if you're going to be respectful of me. Mm-hmm. And then I did have some people who were like, I understand that you're lost. And I was like, okay. And you're being removed. (laughs) And that was a big part of it was I went through all my social media. I went through my Instagram friend list. I went through my Facebook friend list and I removed so many followers because I was just like, I want to create a space for myself where I am safe. I don't have to worry about having my old pastor see a photo that I post that has a cuss word in the caption. Or mm-hmm. where I'm in lingerie because I did a boudoir shoot. I don't want I don't want to have to face that judgment, and I'm just going to remove it right. preemptively, which is okay. It it's your space, it's your life, and you're allowed to mm-hmm. remove and add people into that. Like it, it, it's your space, you can maintain it. Exactly. Um, but yeah, and I think the 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 hard hiccup of that is like you said, when, what, what happens when you've got those triggers that you can't just remove from your life mm-hmm. when it's something where, mm-hmm. uh, even I've been in a store that I didn't know was owned by a Christian owner and they start playing worship music. And I'm yes. like, Oh shit. Oh shit. Like I feel my whole body tense up and, mm-hmm. um, I've had to sit there and just be like, okay, it's a song. I am safe currently. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, this is not shaming me. I'm not going to allow myself to, to hear this and interpret it as shame because it has no power over me. It is quite literally notes strung together. That is it. It's notes strung together. Right. And um, of course, I think there's a difference between, I don't, I, I, I'm going to renege that a little bit because I, I, <laughs> There's no, you can say there's no power with over you, but I also want to validate that sometimes anxiety just happens and you can say, I'm not going to feel anxious all you want. And it's still there, but yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think it can be, it can be really tricky to navigate 
especially when you do still have people who hold a really severe reverence and respect for Christianity in your life or any religion. Um, Mm -hmm. I tried to continue my life post leaving Christianity with having some best friends that were still Christians. And for me personally, it just didn't work. I felt like every time I was around them, I had to be a different version of myself. And I could just Mm -hmm. sense that I was living inauthentically. Um, I would not act the same way or I wouldn't talk about the same things Mm -hmm. or I would make things PG instead of PG 13. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like I would just, I'd kind of put the parental controls on, um, which is hard and it sucks. Um, and I think that is something where that's a person to person thing, you know, there's, there's kind of these, these steps that you can take, but it is, it is depending on your personal experience. Um, even moving from trauma, I'd love to chat about the validity of trauma in the church. We mentioned a little mm-hmm. bit about validation and how there's not a lot of validation in religion, yeah. but specifically why others tend to invalidate religious trauma. And if you even want to chat a little bit about how religious trauma and the psychology of religious trauma, it is just as valid as any other trauma. Mm. That is such a good point. Yes. I love the same religious trauma is trauma. It's just as if any other uh, traumatic event had happened. It just happens to take place in a religious context. And I think that that is a really important um, phrase, an important reminder, because there is a lot of dawning awareness about trauma. I mean, within psychology, the idea of trauma uh, being things other than um, growing up in a war zone, going to war, uh, or maybe even something like an attempted murder. Like, those are the only things that we really recognized as trauma when it was first introduced into psychology. Like, Bessel van der Kolk talks about um, his work in, like, the 1970s and 80s, I think, with kind of helping the PTSD diagnosis uh, get introduced into the DSM and gain some some traction and some credibility as a legitimate thing people face. Now, fast forward to, you know, 2021, within... Um, psychology and therapy circles and also within just kind of people's daily life, you'll hear trauma be referred to as a much wider variety of things. And I think that it's good that it now encompasses um, a wider variety of things, because if we look back to the definition um, that we talked about earlier, anything can be traumatic if it overwhelms your ability to cope at the moment. Um, So things that people might just accept as parts of their religion, like I think about um, the crucifixion or the idea of original sin and um, eternal conscious torment and hell for unbelievers, those things can be incredibly traumatic if you grew up believing them, um, if you think that you might go to hell or someone you love might go, that's going to overwhelm your ability to cope. And that's going to affect you just as if there was any other threat to your life or your body or your personhood. Um, so I think it's important to validate that, um, that religious trauma is trauma. And to note, like you said, 
um, it is very hard for people oftentimes to accept that, um, to accept that something that they may only have had positive experiences with actually do harm to other people. Um, I think about this a lot about in the in the ways that people will um, excuse or defend um, an abuser because they've had a positive relationship with that person. They've never seen this person uh, actively abusing anyone else, and they just can't believe that maybe their family member or their friend or their pastor or someone that they respect could be doing such harmful things. Um, and the tendency then is just to invalidate the survivor that comes forward with their story. And the exact same thing is true oftentimes with religious trauma. People who have had good experiences with the church, who've never um, really experienced anything traumatic, may be hesitant to validate that something um, that's been positive for them can actually have a lot of harm. Um, and I don't think we can fully talk about that without mentioning the fact um, that Christian supremacy plays a huge role in this. Um, if we look at the United States, like we were talking earlier, it's a country that socially and politically is very much intertwined with the theology of Christianity. Um, so when people believe so strongly in that, and that creates sort of a sense of um, moral superiority for them, because it's like, we believe the right things, we're going to heaven. They don't want to believe that their their religious belief that feels so fulfilling to them and promises them such good things could actually be doing so much harm. Um, so I think it's a combination of those things, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of invalidation for people. Um, who experience religious trauma, which is a lot of what motivates me to kind of direct my career in that direction, because trauma survivors that come from religious context are just as worthy of healing and validation and support as any other trauma survivor, but there's not as many resources out there for them. And a lot of people don't even know of the term religious trauma, so they don't even know how to describe or identify their experiences for a really long time. Um, and I think that people who have experienced religious trauma, they deserve to heal. We all deserve to heal. Yeah, that's such a good point. I, I think there's so many, uh, labels and people love to gatekeep <laughs> and they love to gatekeep yeah. trauma. Um, and mm -hmm. I do think that with every step forward, there is a step back in the sense of we've made a step forward in validating um, that trauma and abuse are not just in, uh, you know, a war or in a domestic violence situation, that there are uh, abuse and trauma that are outside of that. But then at the same time, mm -hmm. you, you do see people trying to, you know, use now abuse has become a word where people use it, you know, willy nilly. Um, right. and I remember having to have the conversation with my parents of explaining to them, no, like what I experienced in the church was abusive. And I think the hard thing from with, within that is that there are different types of abuse that people may experience in the church. Some people have experienced yeah. hard and fast, like sexual abuse. And sometimes, mm -hmm. um, I've seen communities give more validity to that than to emotional abuse or emotional manipulation. And even within uh, sexual abuse, I remember me personally, I, I'm a sexual assault survivor and uh, mm. 
I remember even within that community, I felt like, oh gosh, well, like my assault wasn't as bad as someone else's assault. So I don't get to claim the word trauma or Mm. abuse. Um, and I think it is so important to talk about trauma in a way that is, uh, open and honest. And like you said, that really does boil down trauma to a more simple definition of it's, it's not what you think it is. It's not what the media has said it is. The definition of it is literally right. just like, if, if sim- quite simply, if your brain perceives something as traumatic, then it is traumatic for you. Absolutely. It can be something so minor to other people and it's so major to you. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that you're overdramatic. That doesn't mean that you're being overreactive or like too sensitive. It just simply means that your brain is reacting in a different way. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, mm-hmm. And just even you can take religion out of it. If you boil it down to um, car accidents, some people can get in a car accident and they're not traumatized from it. And it's something that maybe was a little scary and they move on from it. Other people can mm-hmm. go through a car accident and they're terrified to get in the car for months. It, it's really a person by person basis. but. Yeah. yeah, I've I've definitely found that um the the religious trauma um invalidation is very it is it is uh, the Venn diagram is a circle between the religious trauma invalidation and the sexual trauma invalidation where there is that oh, yeah. very similar theme of well I had a fantastic experience at that church. They mm-hmm. helped me grow. I love their worship album. Their pastor's so cool. And it is just the arrogance of humans, to be frank. Like, it really boils down to just being arrogant of people assuming that they know more than you you about your own human experience. Um, but yeah, I remember, so uh, I'm going to have an episode coming out. I don't know if it'll be out by the time this is out or not, or if it'll be after, but talking about my deconstruction journey just personally. And part of that journey Mm. for me was, uh, I went to a church for shoot 12 years, 10 years. Um, and the head pastor got kicked out for like 25 plus, uh, sexual misconduct allegations. And that was what spun it around for me because I was recovering from my personal assault. And I remember I was still in the church. I was recovering from my personal assault with Jesus on my side. You know what I mean? Like I was using um, worship music was helping me cope with my own assault. It was helping me process. It was helping me um, feel like I had hope. And I remember I had worship playlists that were um, grief. Uh, I think grief waiting and victory were the title of my worship playlists. Mm-hmm. And I had specific songs for each little season. And in the midst of that, it gets released that this pastor that I have has impacted my life, has taught me wow. so much that I have followed is one of the abusers. And I was not abused wow. by him personally, but I remember being like, fuck what do I do now? Because that now this thing that I had that was keeping me going, I don't have anymore. 
And it just flipped my life upside down. I quite truly did not know what to do. Um, and it, it fucked me up so bad. And it was so interesting because I would talk about it and I would explain how it was messing me up. And because I wasn't, um, I wasn't a victim of him personally. There was a lot of invalidation of just like, well, why are you so affected by this? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like he didn't assault yeah, you. Wow. And even further, there were so many people. I mean, this was, this was something that made the news. <laughs> so it was a really big deal. Like mm-hmm. there were literal like newspaper articles written about it. And I remember in the comments of those like posts online, mm-hmm. there were so many people crucifying these women. And they, the women were anonymous. They came forward anonymously. And mm-hmm. every single response was, oh my gosh, well, I love him. He was such a great pastor to me. He's such a great dad, such a great husband. Um, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. And I, as someone who was going through my own assault, I was literally in the middle of an investigation. So I wasn't even just processing my assault. I was in the middle of an investigation wow. where I had reported my assaulter. And I'm sitting there in the privacy of my own home. No one in my life knows that I'm going through this investigation besides people that I've told. And I'm sitting there reading comments about women who have reported their abuser who are being called attention whores. And I, it just like, I made it my job, my career to defend these women because I was just like, Mm. I can't, I cannot physically sit here and know that they're taking this when I'm going through the same thing, but like in closed doors and people don't know I'm going through it, but I'm going through the same thing. Right. And it was literally like the turnaround point for me where I was mm-hmm. just like, I can't be a part of this anymore. I literally can't do this. I cannot do the church. I can't do it. Um, because there, there was so much preaching of love and grace and X, Y, Z. And then the second that these women came forward, it was just the, the greatest amounts of evil and hatred. Mm. Um, yes. But yeah, there, there, it, it truly is. The Venn diagram is a circle. <laughs> it's a circle between those two things, between people mm-hmm. who are invalidating of religious trauma and people who are invalidating of uh, sexual trauma. It is, there are so many similarities between the two situations. Yes. And it all comes down to, in my opinion, I think ignorance a lot of the times. I think there's a lot of ignorance there. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of it is arrogance. It's assuming that, because you had a positive experience with something or someone, then the uh, someone else could never have a negative experience with that thing or that person. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That is very true. Um, and touching on sexual violence, I mean, that brings up a whole other topic that I'm sure we could talk about for hours, but the way that the hierarchy is in the church based on gender, based on authority roles, um, it creates a lot of power and protection for abusers. You see that with Ravi Zacharias and so many other pastors who are allowed to continue to abuse their power to prey on vulnerable people in their congregation who, as soon as they speak up, are called these despicable names, are, you know, just crucified in the worst possible way. Um, And that is such an issue in the church and as well as 
it did with you. It played a big role for me um, in my de- deconstruction was seeing how uh, people that I loved in my church community were defending. Um, I also had a similar situation with a pastor who was um, sexually abusing children in the various churches that he worked, um, and he was abusive to me as well. And to see so many people defending him and saying that it could never have happened, like you said, it was that perfect Venn diagram circle of using that same rhetoric to deny and invalidate um, the trauma of so many people and feeling like Seeing, seeing that response really, really changed the way that I felt about being in the church. Like you said, it's that transition away from, um, you know, these ideals of love um, and the re-traumatization of victims. Yeah, and I mean, even if you take away the the, the church aspect, it's just one of those things where it's like, if you're recovering from trauma and you're recovering from an experience, Anyone who sits there and then invalidates that experience and acts like they know more about your own trauma than you do, that's someone that you're not going to want in your life. Like they have just violated their safety for you. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think so many people are like, I've had people be like, oh, you just hate the church. And it's like, no, the church has proven that it's not safe for me. It's not that I hate the church. It's that the church has proven to me time and time again that it's not safe. And Mm -hmm. I'm making the educated decision to remove myself from that lack of safety. And the definition of insanity is to keep going back to something and expect a different result. And so I I would be insane to keep going back to the church and expecting to be validated in the ways that I have been invalidated Mm -hmm. time and time again. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's also just one of those things where it's like, I I was just talking to actually my grandpa about this. Um, We had a very long conversation about religion and we were chatting about the fact that he was saying, you know, people can live however they'd like to live. If you like to believe in something and it gives you hope and it gives you a purpose, then go run with it. And we were talking about the caveat of that is once it, once it starts being harmful to others Mm -hmm. and that that's where we draw the line of, if you would like to, um, believe that if everything in your house is green, you're going to have the best life ever. Go for it. Um, if it gives you hope and it gives you a purpose, that is your prerogative and it's your truth. And you can live that truth to its fullest. Once you start, um, saying, you know, if everything in my house is green and everyone in the world is straight, (laughs) then I'm going to live my fullest life. It's like, okay, well, now you've brought something else into it where now you're telling other people how they need to live and you're harming them through that. Now we're not just talking about your truth. You're dictating other people's truths and you're dictating other people's lives. And now that's where I, I have an issue, um, which a <laughs> little segue to um, uh, just talking about queerness in the church, because I think that that is one of the one of the big ones, it's one of the big ones. And it's one of the ones that I think so much of us grew, so many of us grew up thinking that it was the worst thing in the world. Um, that created so much shame and fear in so many people. And I think it's also one of the things Mm -hmm. that people are still 
I think it's one of the hardest things to unpack and one of the hardest things to reverse um, in regards yeah. to like your internalized homophobia. It's, it's mm-hmm. so hard to, to get that to reverse itself. Um, so I know that you talk about queerness on your page and I kind of wanted to just talk to you about that and your experience and um, how, how to learn to not be dissociating from your identity and even how to Mm -hmm. heal afterwards and how to heal from that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you just brought up probably, I think one of the biggest um, sources of trauma in the church that a lot of people experience. Um, I, I think almost every closeted queer kid who grows up in a non-affirming church is probably going to experience some kind of trauma. Like we said, it all comes down to the individual way that their brain and body process the event. Um, But if you are sitting there in the pews every week and you're hearing how um, queer people are going to be burned alive forever and how, and God hates them. And you're hearing these messages And all the while you're growing up and realizing that maybe you have feelings for people that you're not really supposed to have feelings for. It is really, really hard to sit with both of those things when you honestly believe that you're going to be tortured for eternity for these feelings that you're having. Um, So dissociation from your identity makes complete sense given that. Um, I know for me, I really deeply repressed my own queerness for many years. It wasn't until college that I kind of began exploring and being more comfortable um, expressing the fact that, like, I was attracted to men and women um, and and figuring out what that meant for me. Um, I deeply dissociated for many years um, as a form of protection. And I think that's an important thing to validate is like we dissociate from our identities. We repress certain things when our body and brains aren't really safe to process that. Um, And if you're growing up in a non-affirming environment, when you're being told that you're perverted, that there's something wrong with you, um, that you're unnatural, again, that you, you know, deserve to be punished, you may even grow up in a environment where you hear more extreme views promoted. Like, uh, I remember as a, as a kid, my parents, I grew up in California, uh, they made a really big deal of talking about, um, why homosexuality is wrong and how it should be illegal and gay people should be sent to jail, um, taking me to these, uh, kind of far-right Christian political rallies that were very anti-gay um, and deeply homophobic. And you do. You you have to detach from that until you're able to, to process that and realize that you're not actually going to burn in hell because there is no hell. Um, and loving people of whatever gender is absolutely beautiful and wonderful and love is love. But it can take a while to work towards that when you're hearing these really deeply horrible things directed towards people like you. And you're afraid to let anyone know that that's how you feel. Yeah. Um, 
it's one of those things it and it's so hard too because you 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 grow up with what you're taught and i was a really homophobic person for a very good chunk of my life because mm-hmm. that is what i was taught and um i was the kid who walked up to other kids and argued with them about whether or not being gay was a sin and that's mm-hmm. something that i've had to cope with because it's people where uh it sucks to know that you're probably a part of someone else's trauma that's a that's a shitty feeling um yeah but i remember what really turned it around for me was i got i i wasn't someone who dated in high school um Mm -hmm. i wasn't in relationships i was school was my thing and um i got into a relationship in college i fell in love and uh, with a man and I remember thinking, the love that I'm feeling right now, which I've never been in love before, the love that I'm feeling, if I were to feel that towards someone that wasn't a man, and then someone came to me and told me, you're, you're wrong for that, you're disgusting for that, how would I cope? And that was what turned it around for me, was everything else before that was a hypothetical. It was always hypotheticals because I'd never been in a relationship. I'd never been in love. I didn't know what that felt like. And then I fell in love and I remember being, me and my partner actually had the conversation together of being like, what if this wasn't a heterosexual relationship? Like, how would we cope with that? And it kind of took us down a few notches. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, 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 our arrogance mm-hmm. went down because we, we realized, yeah. well, we don't have experience in that. So how are we, how are we judging on that? And it, it, my sexual assault also greatly impacted that because I just started to realize that I don't like it when people judge my experience if they've never experienced it. And I don't like it Absolutely. when people come to me and tell me, hey, your assault is this or this or that or whatever. Or you shouldn't be able to feel this if they mm-hmm. don't, if they have no experience in it. It's just like, okay. Right. You don't, you don't have a right to tell me that. And that was a huge turnaround for me. And then the bigger thing was now, okay, shit, how do I unpack years of homophobia? And, um, I had a therapist tell me you're not responsible for your first thought. You're responsible for your second thought or how you Mm -hmm. respond to that first thought. Because I would and I still, I still, it's still something that I struggle with. Um, seeing queer representation in the media for a very, very, very long time, I would like flinch. And I was just like, oh, because it just was like so, um, right. I, I, I was taught that it was wrong. I was taught that it was bad. And my first thought would be a homophobic thought. and. I had to retrain my brain of, okay, we need to respond to that thought and challenge that thought and think, why did I just think that? Why did that just pop into my head? How can we unpack that? And part of that has been exposing myself to queerness because I wasn't exposed to queerness. Mm-hmm. Ooh, my dog just shook it out a little bit. Um, I wasn't exposed to queerness. So I didn't watch films right. or TV that had same sex kisses or sex scenes. You know what I mean? I I wasn't allowed to watch that. And so some of that has been following social media accounts of people who are openly queer 
being able to see them express their love in a physical way and me being able to see that and slowly inch by inch be able to just be like, okay, last time I saw that and I felt a little bit of a flinch. This time the flinch is smaller and just start to like normalize it in my own life. Um, similar to how you would normalize anything else. It's, it's how I've also tried to work with body positivity. I've tried to follow more accounts of people being open about their fatness and posting their fatness and posting their, uh, cellulite and their roles and their this and their that, and all these things that my brain had interpreted as imperfections for such a long time. Um, I finally just started to expose myself to it. And that's something that I think there's a lot of shame in when it comes to if you're a quote unquote exvangelical and you mm-hmm. still have some of these like deep rooted homophobic, transphobic, uh, XYZ phobic thoughts of mm-hmm. you, you just, it's hard to be, to have the awareness and the humility to come forward and say, I, it's something I'm still working through. And I'm going to be as loving and open to you as possible. And I'm going to have to challenge a lot of thoughts and it's not something I'm proud of. And it's something I feel icky about, but I'm, I'm doing the work of trying to challenge those thoughts. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like this was such a beneficial conversation. Um, I feel like I, I always love when I'm talking with someone and I start to process things in my head where I'm actively learning and processing yeah. during the conversation. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. And uh, if anyone wants to find you on social media, follow your work, um, how would they do that? Do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Instagram as at embodied and thriving. That is currently my only social media platform, but yeah, if anyone is interested in joining the community there, um, I would love that. It's just a space to process through a lot of the issues that we've discussed here on on this podcast um, and to connect with some other people with similar stories because I think a lot of the shame and a lot of the invalidation can be healed in an environment when you realize that you're not alone in what you're processing. Yeah. and. Um just to add on to that too, uh, for any listeners who like we talked at the beginning, maybe you're just starting this deconstruction journey and you feel like you've lost your community. Um, with COVID, it is so hard to find in-person communities right now. And so, um, check out Katie's community and see if that's a community where you feel like you can have some support and some encouragement and some backup and someone in your corner when you feel like you've lost everybody in your corner. Um, because I know for me, if I would have been going through this deconstruction process at the very beginning during COVID, (laughs) I don't even know what I would have done. I think it would have been so overwhelming and thank God for social media, because I think that it really does do a great job of connecting us. But, um, yeah, check out, uh, Katie's community and do some research into finding more communities too. try to find as many communities as you can and make your own community. If you just lost your entire you know, in-person physical community because of your decision to deconstruct and to leave your religion. Try to build it back up little by little, even if that means Zoom calls or support groups or Instagram DMs. Um, But yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, 
that's all the time that we have for today, but thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes, leave us a review. Um, you can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com. Um, but thank you so much again, Katie. Um, I would love to have you back on. It was a great conversation. Um, and then to end our time, um, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath and remember you can always learn, you can always grow and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will see you guys next week.